I've decided we need one of these at Temple Beth El. <laughs> it is an honor to be here at Myers Park Baptist, or as we at Shalom Park and at Temple Beth El say, our Temple Beth El Northern Campus. Thank you. <laughs> it's an honor to be in part because in many ways it's a little subversive. I mean, a rabbi speaking on the first Sunday of Advent and on the eve of Hanukkah. But let me explain what I really mean. Our congregations have had for a, a long history together, including the fact that my congregation quite literally called Myers Park Baptist home in Shalom Hall. In a world of interfaith marriages, we have many joint members of both Temple Bethel and Myers Park Baptist. And the clergy and staff and members of our two congregations have been learning together. We've traveled to Israel together. We've engaged in learning and dialogue for years. Wherever the life paths of our congregations have been, somehow, Temple Bethel and Myers Park Baptist clergy and members have found an excuse to partner to break bread, and to learn and celebrate together. So sure, a rabbi speaking on the first Sunday of Advent may be a little subversive, but what's really subversive is that in this day and age and in this city, we all too often apply the label of interfaith activity to the superficial and symbolic, a sermon here, a benediction uptown over there, but our congregations have had the courage to make regular relationships important. Today is just another day. As our two congregations are holding a class in January on the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and Reverend Mia is speaking at Temple Bethel in January, and I invite you all to be there on the first night before Martin Luther King Day Jr. Jr.'s uh, day. And what I love is the courage and beauty of two ordinary relationships between two communities. But what isn't ordinary at all is for a rabbi to preach on the book of Matthew. <laughs> that's, that's just not ordinary. A quick disclaimer. Jewish scripture is part of Christian scriptural tradition, but the converse is not true. And because the New Testament is not part of the Jewish canon, I have some serious trepidation about speaking about Matthew 25. This is causing me some anxiety. And I'm extremely grateful for the friendship that I have with your clergy, knowing very well that if, Reverend, if I, whatever I say is wrong, Reverend Ben will lovingly tell me so, presumably after the service. <laughs> Even in my superficial knowledge of the New Testament, these verses have always spoken to me deeply when I first read them in my Christian scriptures class in seminary. These words from Matthew appeal to me as a Jew because they focus on deeds of compassion as a way of bringing godliness to the ordinary path of the day-to-day -day world that we live in. And they appeal to me as a human because of Jesus' concern for those who suffer at the periphery of society. The scripture reminds us that God's presence is manifest not only in those who are suffering, 
but in those who fill the stomachs of the suffering, who work to alleviate the poverty of suffering, who lift up their spirits and uphold their dignity. God is everywhere at the margins, manifest in the least of these. And God is manifest in those who can and choose to help the least of these. The Jewish framework for these ideas is from Genesis 1.27, where scripture teaches that humanity was created B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. That means when Jesus, son of man, says in Matthew 25, just as you did to the one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me, it's not really a metaphor. For Jesus, a Jew who knew the Torah's teachings very well, humanity was created in God's image. Whatever we do to one another, we are doing to God. And it's a message for Advent as well. When in this holiday season we lose our temper with our spouses or our children, when we roll up our windows at the stoplight so we don't have to confront the homeless man on the corner, or even when we love someone but choose to ignore or not confront hard truths, we are failing to act as though the people we can encounter are made in the image of God. We are failing to see the divine spark in each person's soul. Scripture is saying that the choice of seeing people as created in the image of God is not just about what tone of voice we use or how and when to give, it, give to the needy. It's a choice about actually choosing to recognize God in the souls of those we encounter in the everyday relationships that we have. Additionally, the scripture's insistence that the presence of God's image in the least of these, in the hungry and the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, is a brilliant reminder that God's image is found everywhere we look, in every person that we see, not just in our beloved family members or in our community here at Myers Park Baptist, but also in Tryon Hills and Greer Heights. As a rabbi and interpreter of Jewish tradition, when I read, I was sick and you took care of me, I remember that the rabbinic tradition teaches that the Shekhinah, God's indwelling presence, is at every single sickbed. When I read, for I was hungry and you gave me food, I remember all the Jewish legends about the prophet Elijah. As you know, Elijah, he never quite dies. He ascends to heaven in a fiery chariot, and as a result, he is a prominent and popular figure figure in later Jewish legends. In the Jewish folk tradition, Elijah shows up at every blessing of a newborn child, at every Passover Seder. And because Elijah will be the herald of the messianic age, Elijah keeps showing up among us, disguised as a beggar. Why? To see how we treat him. If we treat him with compassion and respect as a human made in the image of God, then perhaps we are ready for the blessing of God's kingdom here on earth. The Elijah legend gives us in many ways the same litmus test 
as the Matthew passage in the Jewish tradition. The context is not individual salvation or punishment, but as this season of the year suggests, is the world ready for the arrival of a messianic figure and a messianic time? For a Jew, that means that each of us, in each time we sort of slam the door on the least of these, we slam the door on the messianic promise and we slam the door on God. As a Jew, I also found myself drawn to the sense of surprise by God's presence for those who are in such circumstances. People seem to be surprised by the presence of God in those that despair. When my Jewish ears hear their surprise, I I hear most of all Jacob's voice in Genesis 28, which David Ziso beautifully read. It's a text that is important to my congregation because at the end of the text, Jacob calls the place, as David said beautifully, Beth El, a house of God. So as we just read in Genesis, Jacob, who is on the run for his life from his brother Esau, had to stop for the night in an open field because the sun had set. Jacob, who uses a stone as a pillow and has a dream of a ladder with angels ascending and descending upon it, And Jacob, who awakens from his dream and says the verse that is above the ark at our temple, Behold, God is in this place, and I did not know. God was there all along. In the rocky field, as Jacob laid his head on a stone pillow, in the dream of a young man fleeing for his life. So what are we to learn about God from scriptures? You can't put God in a box. God is unpredictable. God shows up where and when we least expect it. God shows up when it's dusk and we are desperate. God shows up where people sleep on stone pillows or in refrigerator boxes. And where such people sleep and dream, that is the place of angels ascending a ladder to heaven. That sense of sacred surprise echoes again in Jewish teachings about Mount Sinai. Sinai is a Jewish geographic equivalent to the Matthew passage. Remember, the setting for God's revelation to the people of Israel where God, God's word is given, revelation doesn't take place in a palace or in a lush garden. Revelation doesn't place, take place in a temple. It doesn't even take place in the promised land. The Torah, the teachings of our tradition were given and God's presence revealed in the middle of a desert, the most barren of surroundings, where only the most desperate human beings would even attempt to live. Why was the Torah given in a desert mountain? To remind us of the duty to live by Torah's ideals, especially in our treatment of the desperate and downtrodden. The Torah, as Jesus himself understood, is given in the desert to call our attention to all of the examples of needs and pains that we encounter day by day. 
We are sometimes guilty of secularizing sacred work to the level of civic volunteerism. B'Tselem Elohim, humanity created in the image of God, can too easily become a cliche that allows us to ignore God's presence altogether, even and especially in our righteous acts. We are often more comfortable speaking of values than of God who grounds them. Matthew's challenge is not limited to a singular moment of judgment at the end of time. The challenge of these verses is for us today. And as you enter into the season of Advent, I want to encourage you, a rabbi speaking to a Christian congregation, to consider how God's presence is ongoing and real. And as you enter the season of Advent, I encourage you to recognize God's presence is ongoing and real and urgent and absolutely ordinary. As ordinary as a person in need, as ordinary as a sunrise, as ordinary as a gasp of surprise and a smile of recognition, as ordinary as the look of understanding in the eyes of a loved one. As ordinary as a Sunday, when a hallowed text of a great tradition is considered by a rabbi, inviting you to open your doors and your hearts to see God's presence in the least of these. As the words above Temple Beth El's holy ark reads, Achen yesh makom hazah, surely God is in this place. And may we see God in the least of these. And may we bring God's spark of light into our darkened world through our actions, our hearts, and our love. Surely God is in this place. And how blessed we are to know it. Amen.